Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to open your word here this morning. We pray that as we deal with what is a, a negative topic here, bad authority in the home, we pray that it would inform us in both good and bad authority, uh, help to inform us as a church what the word says about these topics, and pray that we would uh, land on a solidly biblical position. So help us, Lord. Help me as I navigate through the text and pray that it would be edifying for all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, Let's uh, turn in in our Bibles. uh, First, very briefly, we're going to go back to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at Ephesians 5, 22, 24. Um, Not in depth, because as I said, Pastor Nam just went through this a couple weeks ago, but we're going to review some of the principles set uh, forth there Uh, before we move on in our study. So we're going to look here at Ephesians 5, 22 to 24 and the establishment of male headship. Paul writes, Their wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, passage we're familiar with. We just heard the messages on this not that long ago. But first we see that a wife is called by God to submit to her husband's authority, which refers to her taking a subordinate role to him. Now, why is the wife given the role by God to submit to her husband? Well, I think we all know this, but it bears repeating. It is not, and I repeat, not because she is inferior to her husband in any way whatsoever. Genesis 2.18 said that the, the, the woman was to be created as a helper for the man, yet one who was fit for him, which means he was equal to him, comparable to him. Uh, So there's a stressing right from the beginning on their equality, her equality to Adam. And yet Paul explains here the implications of that creative order and in several other places for that matter. She was created to be his helper, not the other way around, which then emphasizes her subordinate role. This is her God-given role. And if a wife does not assume that submissive role, she's not doing what God created her to do. Now, this is made unequivocally clear in this particular passage. She is to submit to her husband as to the Lord. In other words, in the same way that she would to the Lord. And in that same way means it's not kicking and screaming submission, right? There's a willingness to that submission. And verse 24 also makes it clear that she needs to submit in everything uh, to their husbands, just as the church submits to Christ in everything. Now, verse 23 is where we want to focus our attention, as it highlights the God-given authority that the husband has in his marriage. He is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Now, this means... The reason that a wife is to submit to her husband is because God has ordained him to be her head in the same way that he ordained Christ to be head over the church. Now, the word uh, head there 
clearly has the connotation of ruler or authority. Now think about just how offensive uh, and countercultural this verse is today, more than maybe any time that it ever has been. But as you can see, the way that this is worded is unequivocal, unmistakable, understandable, and it applies for all people, for all time, not just for the audience to whom it was written. Think about it. Is Christ still the head over the church today? If the husband is no longer head of the wife, uh, of the wife then Christ is no longer head of the church. Because the first part of the statement is based upon the latter part. But as this passage teaches, when the wife voluntarily submits herself to her husband, she provides a proper picture of the church submitting to the Lord. So, in other words, the husband represents Christ while the wife represents the church. Okay, so that's a brief review of what we've talked about, right? All right, so good authority in the home and the establishment of male headship leads to this discussion, there are limits to male headship, okay? So with that said, this is the God-given authority that has been granted to the husband, but we have to stress, this isn't an unqualified blank check authority, blank check of authority over his wife. There is no sphere of human authority over your life that is unlimited and without boundaries. Now, if you've been at IBC for a while, that isn't really news to you, but I just want to warn you that there are a lot of unbalanced, extreme material that is published on this subject. Now, I'm talking about those that take the true notion of the husband's headship, but paint a picture that is so absolute that it goes beyond the biblical bounds and is therefore ripe for encouraging abuse. And surprise, it has encouraged abuse. For example, there are Bible teachers uh, who say that these passages indicate that husbands have unlimited authority over both large and small matters and that there are literally no restrictions on a, hus- on a wife's obedience uh, to her husband. In fact, some of these same authors have gone so far as to teach that this submission and obedience would even include sinful things. Sinful things like wife swapping, domestic abuse, and you know, child abuse, all under the rubric of submission to your husband. After all, we're told in the same literature that the wife, according to Ephesians 5.24, is to submit to her husband in everything. And so that includes all the minutia of life, both big and small. And some who hold to this model of the husband's absolute authority state that a wife Um, should never correct her husband, even in private, and should never make any kind of purchase, big or small, uh, independent of her husband's authority. And under this abusive model, male and female differences are emphasized 
to such an unhealthy degree that equality uh, between the sexes are minimized, if not altogether eliminated. Well, before we move on, let me quickly address Ephesians 5.24 and say right off the bat that Paul does not mean everything absolutely without any qualifications. There are obvious qualifiers to it. In everything means or refers to all matters of life, every category of life, but not each and everything that the husband says. There's a difference. Think about it. Does God give me the authority to command my wife to violate his word? Because if he does, then practically speaking, I have more authority over my wife than God himself does. Does that sound right to you? If obeying your husband trumps what God says, then your husband uh, is really God to you after all. Does that really sound like that's Paul's intention in writing Ephesians chapter 5? I hardly think so. So commanding my wife to sin is not part of my God-given authority and violates the very reason for God-given authority. And we talked about that last week. The reason for God-given authority is not to be barking out orders. It's for protection and care. So let's make sure that we're clear. This refers to the extent of the husband's authority, not the degree. There are limits to his authority. And there is such a thing as overstepping or abusing one's God's given authority. Listen, husbands, you yourself are under God's authority and he has granted you a limited measure of authority over your wife. You cannot abuse your authority by asking her to sin or do that which is dishonoring to God because to do so would be an affront against God himself. There's a responsibility that comes with male headship. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I'm just going to look at that one verse here. Likewise, this is the Apostle Peter speaking. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You know, the responsibility of male headship uh, is, as I've already said, it's far more than just barking out orders to be obeyed. It is exercising that authority for the good of your wife. Let's break this down a little bit more. First of all, notice in the passage, live with is found only in this passage in the entirety of the New Testament, but it is found eight times in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the total marriage relationship, which includes both social and sexual aspects. Notice that the husband's attitude towards his wife, 
is in an understanding way, which literally reads in the Greek text, and I wish they would have translated it this way, according to knowledge. Now, immediately, we ask the question, well, knowledge of what? What are we talking about here? Well, it's probably not specific to refer to just one thing, but is meant to be more open-ended. You know, Wayne Grudem, he explains it uh, this way. Let's listen to what uh, Dr. Grudem says. I don't think I made a slide for this. Yeah, I didn't. Okay. Uh, He said this, the knowledge Peter intends here may include any knowledge that would be beneficial to the husband-wife relationship. Knowledge of God's purposes and principles for marriage. Knowledge of the wife's desires, goals, and frustrations. Knowledge of her strengths and weaknesses in the physical, emotional, and spiritual realms, etc. A husband who lives according to such knowledge will greatly enrich his marriage relationship. Yet, such knowledge can only be gained through regular study of God's word and regular unhurried times of private fellowship together as husband and wife. So, it's a very good quote. So, this knowledge that Peter refers to is a comprehensive knowledge. It's a combination of personal insight into one's wife that leads to a loving and considerate care in every aspect of that marriage relationship, physical and spiritual. And knowing how to minister slash shepherd her in accordance with God's word. So sensitivity to the needs of the wife is part of that responsibility of the husband. It's not an optional benefit to the wife. You know, oh, I hope my husband does all these things. No, that's part and parcel of his headship responsibilities. Second, showing honor. The second responsibility of male headship is showing honor to your wife. Now, we should pause here to note that husbands honoring their wives was actually considered counter-cultural for the Greco-Roman world of Peter's day. Let that sink in for a bit. This is news, in other words, in the scripture. Understand This is more than just a mere verbal exercise. It also includes the actions behind those words. Husbands should be in the habit, then, of complimenting and encouraging her while looking for opportunities to serve her. It's the biblical mandate of every husband that he consistently honors his wife as one who deserves esteem and respect. Why does Peter refer to the wife, as we read this passage, as the weaker vessel? And how is that the basis of giving honor to her? You know, that word vessel there, it's often used uh, literally of a piece of pottery. And metaphorically, it can refer to the human body. Now, in this verse, I I want us to understand this. In this verse, both men and women are pictured as frail vessels used by God for his purposes. But, 
the women are seen as the weaker of the two weak vessels. So the adjective weaker then is being used in a comparative sense. Weak versus weaker. Now, we don't have a lot of time to discuss this because we have a lot to do this morning, but it's enough to say that this comment was not intended by Peter to be a derogatory comment or a claim of inferiority towards the wife as the weaker vessel. Peter probably has in mind weaknesses within the woman that, they, that the husband could take advantage of or exploit. So understand what, what's going on here. In other words, there are areas that will make the woman, the wife, more susceptible to being abused both physically and spiritually. So this would include, okay, it would include her comparatively physical weakness, which again can be exploited, but probably also involves, in addition to that, her greater emotional sensitivity, that she is more tender and delicate. Now, I hope it goes without saying, but like most things, we're going to say it anyways, uh, that husbands should not exploit their wives' physical weakness and physically dominate them. For a husband to beat his wife is to violate his covenant commitment that he made to his wife when they got married. And he is guilty of abusing his headship authority. Now that's one side of the coin. But also since wives are much more likely to be hurt by harsh or inconsiderate behavior. Husbands need to be more sensitive to their wives. Husbands need to be careful that they aren't constantly criticizing and nitpicking their wives, but aim to be more positive and affirming. Furthermore, the fact that the wife is more vulnerable should cause the husband to be more protective of her rather than taking advantage of her comparative weaknesses so that he would be more abusive or oppressive. He shouldn't just be shouting her down, dominating her, crushing her spirit as abusers tend to do. And lastly, it shouldn't be forgotten by any husband that his wife is a co-heir together with you of the grace of life. You know, simply put, that means she's your equal, not your inferior, and will one day enjoy the same gift of eternal life with you in the age to come. So let's make the obvious point that abusive behavior towards your wife, whether it's physical, spiritual, is contradictory to a husband's authority. It's a very antithesis to honoring your wife. A husband has a responsibility to know God's word and to know his wife so that he can love and honor her better. Now that being the case, the failure on the part of the husband to carry out his divine mandate to love his wife in the manner stated in this verse, will result in the hindering or the thwarting of his prayers. 
You know, God's blessing in answered prayer will be withheld from those husbands who abuse their authority and mistreat their wives. And, and that's a form of God's disciplining hand in the husband's life. That's a pretty serious statement uh, and a stern warning to every husband here in this room. God will not answer your prayers if you mistreat your wife and your relationship to your wife directly affects your relationship to God himself. All right, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 19, showing love, not bitterness. Paul says there in Colossians 3, 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Did you know that in Paul's day, a command for a husband to love his wife was also considered to be countercultural in that day? It's not that no one in Paul's day advocated for a husband to love their wife. There are actually some philosophers and ethicists that did. Only to make the point, it wasn't typical. It was the outlier, not the norm. In fact, we have never discovered any household code from the ancient world that required husbands to love their wives. Okay? So we take that for granted today. It wasn't taken for granted in the first century. The kind of love that the Christian husband is called to exercise towards his wife is the agape love, the unconditional, self-sacrificial love that is modeled after Christ's love for us. This is the most fundamental aspect of the husband's headship, that he loves the one whom he has authority over. If he doesn't, he isn't exercising his headship in the way that pleases God. What an important reminder for the husband so as not to abuse his headship authority. Let's look at the negative command given to the husbands that they are not to be harsh with their wives. This is a present middle imperative. Stop being bitter or could be translated one of two ways, stop being bitter, or do not be in the habit of being bitter. This word has the idea of to embitter or to exasperate, to render angry, right? And interestingly, words from the same Greek root that is used here is found in ancient Greek writings to refer to a rulership that is both harsh and domineering. So whether in thought, word, or deed, Christian husbands are not to act with the heart of bitterness against their wives. Meaning, they're not to focus on things that produce or fester bitterness between themselves and their wives. A husband's headship ought not to be exercised in a harsh, uh, but uh, loving manner instead. You know, maybe you're upset with your wife because your expectations uh, haven't been met. Maybe your, your house isn't clean when, when you get home from work. Maybe the kids' toys are scattered 
you know, all over the house. The laundry is backed up and overflowing. Or you've been asking her to take care of something for a while and it still hasn't been completed. Or maybe your wife is too tired at the end of the day to be intimate with you and you feel put off or angry. In all of these cases, bitterness can fester in the heart of the husband. And as a result, he needs to guard his heart from letting bitterness and anger reside there. You know, if we have a beef with our wives, we need to get into the habit of bringing it up to her in a constructive manner and not just avoid it. Let it bottle up inside of us and fester into full-blown bitterness until it one day expresses itself in harshness and anger. Maybe it's a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there, and one day, pow, you know, it all just comes out. If we are embittered towards our wife, we are not being faithful to our headship responsibility. It's something we must confess to our wives and ask for her forgiveness for the way we've been treating her as a result of our bitter heart. All right, let's move on to number two in our outline here, and that is bad authority in the home and what constitutes domestic abuse, also known as oppression. What happens when the one in authority, the head, causes harm, pain, danger, or degradation for his spouse who is under his authority? He is committing the sin of oppression. Oppression is the unjust, cruel, or burdensome use of authority, whereby he seeks to diminish the personal capacities, either physically or spiritually, of those who are under their authority in order to control them. It's an important part, that, that end. He, he is, in effect, weakening his spouse through the, the force he is exerting to make her easier to control. This can be demonstrated when one spouse pursues their own selfish, uh, selfish interests uh, and in the process seeks to control and dominate their spouse through the ungodly pattern of coercive and punishing actions and attitudes. You know, a common part of this tactic um, is the abuse of scripture to manipulate his wife in order to get his way, showing her that scripture backs up his abusive control. It's a very common thing. Ah, oh, you know, you, you need to be, this is the right thing to do. Let me show you some passages that, that back this up. But it's an abuse of scripture. Such an abuser's mentality basically amounts to this. Either you serve me or I will be unhappy and then you know what? You will suffer the consequences. As uh, Robin Huck has helpfully pointed out, when headship considers itself independent, autonomous, and self-governing without humility toward God and man, it will serve itself 
rather than others, unquote. And that's exactly what happens in the case of an abuse of headship. What are some relevant verses, scripture verses, that apply to those who oppress? You know, scripture has a lot to say about the issue of oppression. How about Exodus 22, verse 21? You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 24, verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. How about Proverbs 31, verses 8 to 9? Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. The Lord, Psalm 11:5. the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Proverbs 12, verse 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Oops, one, oh, there's one more actually, but uh, I guess it didn't make it on here for some reason. Psalm 11, verse 5, uh, the Lord tests the righteous, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Proverbs 12, 18, I'm sorry. Oh no, I did, I got them all. Actually, I did get them all. Okay, never mind. I did get them all. Okay. Anyways, um, how common, after saying all that, how common is domestic abuse? This might sound shocking to you, but the statistics seem to bear out one out of five couples in any given church are suffering from domestic abuse. That's an alarmingly high number, and one we all need to uh, take seriously, and we need to come to grips with, with that number. What are the common experiences of women who are being abused? Let me just give you a couple of these here. These are some common experiences. Number one, oppressed women will often live in constant fear, tension, always walking on eggshells around their, around their spouse. They're worried that they're going to set him off. You know, they become so tired of trying to please and appease their spouse, and yet they just keep on trying, despite the fact that nothing seems to work. They wonder if something is wrong with them. Whether the situation is really as bad as it seems, or maybe I'm just overreacting. Or maybe it's just my fault after all, and and I deserve it. Lots of contradictory thoughts and emotions come into play, and this is a sad thing. They even begin to question God, wondering why all of this is happening to them, and he's not helping their situation or her situation. And this has now affected her relationship with God and how she views him. Secondly, oppressed women often make excuses for the behavior of their spouse because they know and recognize, well, I'm not blameless either. 
I have sin in my life as well. And uh, I've fallen short, right? And so, you know the rest of the story. Ladies, look, you should never condone your husband's abusive behavior by blaming yourself. That you caused him to sin. That if only you were more submissive, then he wouldn't have fallen into these abusive patterns. Those are all blame-shifting arguments and not at all helpful in getting him to confront his sin. Now, there's going to be plenty of time to work on your own sin issues in the counseling process, but that in no way legitimizes your husband's abusive behavior. You know, there's corollary damage uh, that's due to the sin of oppression. You know, number one, a sense of worthlessness on the part of the wife and often a desire to die. I just want, I'd rather be dead than have to, to go through all of this. Number two, hopelessness and disbelief that life will ever improve. If this is all there is, oh my gosh, I don't want to live that long. Number three, questioning whether God cares about her. Does God really love me? Why would he want me to live like this? Why am I going through all this? Number four, another common one, hatred of all men because of what one man has done to her, right? You start to distrust men in general because of one man in particular. Number five, hoping or praying that evil will befall the perpetrator, you know, I hope he falls into a ditch today, you know, or something, or, I, you know, all kinds of, I don't want to put thoughts into your head, but, you know, all kinds of wicked thoughts can come in this one. Maybe we better move on here. Huh? Number six, behavior that purposely tempts the head to sinfulness for the purpose of entrapment or to build a stronger case against him. This is when it starts going from despair to, you know, plotting, I guess, but, uh, but these are common things that, that take place. And again, lastly, self-righteousness. Any or all of these things are on the spectrum, common, you know, things that wives go through because of abuse. And, it, and again, it's what we talked about last week. Sin begets more sin, right? What do abusers have in common. You know, um, oops, going too fast here. What do abusers have in common? Number one, abusers are often deceptive and skillful at disguising their abusive behavior. You know, pastors are often fooled by such tactics and oftentimes uh, will unfortunately, dismiss the claims of the wife. This is what I call the Eddie Haskell syndrome. Now, for those of you who are younger, you don't know who in the world Eddie Haskell is, but Eddie Haskell was, uh, you know, Wally's best friend on Leave it to Beaver, and uh, he was one of the, the biggest jerk in the neighborhood, always getting Beaver into trouble, always causing trouble in the neighborhood, but whenever his parents were around, he was oh, hello, Mr. Hi, Mr. Cleaver. Oh, it's so good. Your hair looks so nice, Mrs. And Abusers tend to be like Eddie Haskell. They, they, they misbehave, they're abusive, but when they're with their pastors, they're on their best behavior, the kindest people, and it tends to trick a lot of pastors, right? 
That's one thing they have in common. Secondly, here is a common misconception. A common misconception is that oppressors are helpless in one sense, that their reactions can't be controlled because when they get angry, they are out of control. I have news for you. In actuality, abusers are not out of control. They're actually seeking control, coercive control. They know what they're doing and they know exactly why they're doing it. And you know what their main goal really is? It's to fulfill their own desires to orchestrate events so that they ultimately get what they want. For example, if a wife suffers abuse, when she asks her husband to help her with the kids, she's being trained not to ask for help anymore. Abusers abuse so that their life can be exactly the way they want it to be. Again, we're talking about a control issue. They're entitled people, feeling that they have the right to have their desires met, and so they treat their wife in this abusive way. All right. Limits to a husband's authority. I want to uh, talk about what are, what are the limits now to that authority that God has given to the husband over the wife. Number uh, A, violating a biblical command or principle. I want to make it clear, this not only applies to explicit biblical commands, but ones that are implicit as well. You know, there are issues that aren't explicitly named in Scripture that would follow under this heading. For example, and these are real-life examples that, are, that I'm giving here. Pornography viewing as a couple. Cosmetic surgery. Sexual fetishes. And artificial reproductive technology. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Some husbands have sought to pressure their wives to participate in behaviors against her will in the name of submission, often stating it this way, my demands are not unbiblical. I beg to differ. Look, just because she can't appeal to a verse that says, thou shalt not command me to get breast implants, doesn't mean she doesn't have biblical principles to stand on. Look, if she's able to fear, you know, praise God because she is fearfully and wonderfully made, why does she need to alter her appearance because you say you want her to or commanding her to? Look, it's never good to go against your conscience and it's never good to force someone to sin against their conscience. Also, how does forcing your wife to do something against her will, square with the verses that we looked at earlier, to love your wife, to honor your wife, to live with her in an understanding way. It seems to me that respecting the convictions of your wife is consistent with those commands, but to demand her to violate her convictions are contradictory to your headship responsibilities, and that's an abuse of the husband's authority. B, a wife should never compromise her relationship with the Lord. Uh, 
the wife has one and only one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. A husband is not permitted to make demands on his wife that will negatively affect her relationship with Jesus. Now, this can include things like preventing her from going to church, preventing her from receiving biblical counsel, or fellowshipping with other believers. A wife should never be put in a place where she has to violate her conscience. And so when a husband asks his wife to do something or participate in anything that violates her conscience, she is not bound to obey. Now, as you can see, there's a little bit of overlap uh, with our previous point that we made here. By the way, Think of this verse, Romans 14, 22 to 23, which applies to both of those principles. Uh, Paul says this, the faith that you have. Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Here's the punchline. For whatever does not proceed from faith is what? It's sin. C, a wife doesn't need to submit if submitting can put your children at risk or foreseeably lead to the harm of you or others in your household. You know, as, as a parent, I'm talking to the wives here, you have a responsibility to love, provide for, and protect your children. Your husband cannot command you to do anything whether it's in the name of discipline, punishment, or whatever else that puts them in harm's way. It's never okay to verbally or physically abuse your child, to starve or demean your child, and a wife should never go along with that kind of behavior. She has a responsibility to protect her children and to speak with her elders the police, or both if necessary, right, in the case of these abuses. In fact, that's what we would encourage you to do. If you find yourself in these situations, wives, um, this is what you need to do. You remember we went over that last week, so I don't want to cover that again. Plus, I don't have any time to cover it again. But you need to tell the elders, we will call the police, and we will enter into the process that we do here at IBC. Now, I want everyone to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25, okay? Turn to 1 Samuel 25, and I, I realize I'm running out of time here, but this is so important. I want to briefly look at this principle in action. It's the story of an amazing woman, Abigail, who had a very rich and a very wicked husband by the name of Nabal. Now, the conflict in the narrative begins because David and his men, they went out of their way to protect Nabal's servants and flocks during shearing season. That, that's a time, by the way, where they would have been vulnerable to thieves. And, uh, you know, they could get their, their, you know, the sheep shearing stolen and all that, the money, all of that stuff. Now, understand, Nabal wasn't a complete stranger either, as he was from the same tribe as David, meaning he would have been related. He would have been a, a distant relative to David. 
And the Calebite clan that he was from was actually responsible. It was a prominent clan. They were responsible for founding David's hometown, Bethlehem. Now, when David sent his 10 messengers to let Nabal know the service that he and his men, it's really security, right? Uh, for the, you know, uh, for his shepherds, he asked just one thing, that on a special feasting day, which that day was, please provide me and my men with food and drink. Well, Nabal, whose name, you know what his name actually means? His name means worthless. I can't imagine his mother actually, you know, named that. <laughs> hey, he's worthless. It's probably a name that was given to him later on because of his character. That's sometimes how these things work. But he rebuffs the request made by David and basically insulted him, comparing him and his men to runaway slaves in verse 10. And he basically says, to give my food away to David and his men, that would be a waste of my resources. David was crazy angry when his men returned with this insulting message. And he instructs 400 of his men to strap on their swords and to follow him. Now you have to understand, David is going rogue here. Okay, He is sinfully looking to take justice into his own hands. David's from the streets, so he's going to go get some street justice here. Now, here's where we get to the relevant part for our purposes. One of the servants that was present found Abigail, okay, Nabal's wife, and let her know what was going down. And the injustice that was perpetrated on David's men by her worthless husband, Nabal right? Okay, Abigail now has a decision to make. Either she submits to Nabal's decision, which means almost certain harm to the rest of her household, or she bucks the authority of her husband, right? And do for David and his men what her husband should have done. And possibly spare her family a horrible tragedy. What did Abigail choose to do? All right, I'm going to pick up the story there in uh, verse 23. All right, where am I here? Okay, hold on a second. No wonder. All right. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, 
And as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and have granted your petition. All right. Even though, that's an amazing story, but even though Abigail had no fault in this matter, she apologizes to David as if it were her fault, right? And she pleads for forgiveness, urges him to take the gift that she prepared and basically persuaded him from taking vengeance for himself and blatantly violating God's law in such an egregious manner. Abigail has won David over. In fact, she, she is so cool the way that she persuades him. You know that whole talk about slinging, right? Where do you think that language would have provoked in, in David's mind, right? The sling against uh, Goliath and all, all of that, right? And she wins him over. And he agrees to take her gift and to repent of what he was about to do. And that was, he was going to wipe out every male left in her household, Now, let me ask you a question. Did David think that Abigail was an unsubmissive wife? Or did he think she was a good wife? Well, you know, we don't have to guess. Because after God judges Nabal, and he dies just a short time after, that's in verse 38, David, in verses 39 to 42, asks her to become his wife. David certainly didn't view Abigail as an unsubmissive wife, but one that was noble and worthy to marry. So much to learn from this godly woman 
who refused to obey her husband when she knew it would lead to the harm of her family members and possibly to herself as well. All right, we got a boogie here. A wife doesn't have to submit to physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. Oops, I'm one behind, huh? Okay. There have been pastors that have offered this kind of counsel to an abused wife. If you just submit to your husband, even if he is abusive, God will honor your obedience and the abuse will either stop or God will give you the grace to endure the abuse. They'll even quote verses like 1 Peter 1.6 to substantiate the point, which says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Give me a break. First, what a travesty for any Christian writer, biblical counselor, or Bible teacher, or pastor to suggest that it's within the purview of a husband's authority to physically, sexually, or emotionally abuse his wife. Why would God give a husband that kind of authority? God-given authority, as we've already established last week and this week, has the responsibility to protect and provide for those under their care, not to hurt other people. So to suggest that a wife is to submit to her abusive husband's behavior is asking her to aid and abet his sin, not to mention the fact that God is not calling women to endure violence and abuse when it can be avoided. How does either husband or wife benefit from an oppressive relationship? They don't. And anyone who tries to make a biblical case for such a thing is valuing the marriage covenant over the wife's safety and her personal well-being. Is a marriage covenant important? Absolutely. But not more important than the woman's life. Did King Saul have authority over David? Yes, he did. But he also tried to use that authority to have David killed. Did David have to submit to Saul's authority and let himself be killed unjustly? No. David fled from Saul's presence on several occasions rather than to just submit to his abuser. Similarly, both Jesus and the apostles avoided physical persecution by fleeing rather than submit to the abuse of those who were in authority over them. Proverbs 22 verse 3 says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Listen, there's nothing virtuous about suffering abuse unjustly. What should a wife do when facing abuse? Well, realize that God hasn't only placed your husband in authority over you. He has also placed others in authority over you as well, including your church elders and the governing authorities. When there is difficulty with your husband's authority, it is totally appropriate and necessary to get the other sources of authority to intervene. 
when one aspect of authority in our life becomes abusive, God has graciously given other sources to intervene. So as we end our time this morning, and I, I have actually one minute to spare here, I think, when we're all set. Let me remind you, I wish I had more time to do this. This is not, this is basically to finish off strong, but I wish I had more time to exposit these. I want, to re- I want you all to remember that God is your stronghold who hears you and helps you. Think of these verses. Proverbs 9 verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 10, 17 to 18, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Psalm 37, 40, the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. Psalm 103, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Judges 2, verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. I'm out of time, so I'm I'm going to skip the the, the last verse there. But let me just close by saying this. It's sad and unfortunate that so many Christians are blaming the Bible's teaching of complementarianism as the reason why relationships are becoming abusive. But we want to make it clear that it's not the Bible's teaching that is to blame. It's the abuse of the Bible's teaching that is to blame. Some teachers are perpetuating extreme views of male headship that are directly resulting in abusive relationships, and we need to speak out against it. The right exercise of headship isn't about getting my own way, and it doesn't result in abuse. It results in love, care, and protection, honor, and safety for the wife who is under his authority. It is exercising authority in the same way that Christ exercised his authority. So men, let's strive to emulate him in our marriages. Ladies of IBC, God forbid, but if any of you are in this situation this morning that I described, this is not okay. And we're here to help you, um, but you have to, to let us know. But we're going on record, so there's no misunderstanding that uh, this is not okay. And uh, there is a right and wrong, a good and bad exercise of authority. And we hope that our series here this month has clarified much of that for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to open your word, uh, not only this morning, but this month in our Family Focus Month, to talk about good and bad authority to clear up confusion and misconceptions. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we accomplish that purpose this month. Use these truths to help our people to grow and to understand um, them much better as we pray these things in Jesus' name.